Amy, we've got a bunch of little nieces and nephews between us, but we've also got a catch-all gift that all of our siblings love for their newborns. You're totally right, and it's Pampers Swaddlers, because Pampers Swaddlers wick wetness away to keep babies drier and subsequently parents happier. Pampers Swaddlers absorb wetness better versus the leading value brand and provide up to 100% leak-proof skin protection and up to 0% skin irritation. Pampers Swaddlers are dermatologist approved by the Skin Health Alliance. They're hypoallergenic and they're free of parabens and latex. Now you can try Swaddlers with new Pampers Free and Gentle Wipes for healthy baby skin. These wipes won't tear. In fact, they grip mess, shall we say, more firmly and clean better, leaving baby skin dry, soft, and smooth. For trusted protection, trust Pampers, the number one pediatrician recommended brand. Download the Pampers Club app today and earn Pampers cash. Redeem your Pampers cash for exclusive Pampers coupon savings and rewards. Only redeemable via Pampers Club. Pampers Cash has no cash value. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Fresh Take from What Fresh Hell? Laughing in the Face of Motherhood. This is Amy. Today, I'm talking to Esau McCauley. He is an author and associate professor of New Testament at Wheaton College. Esau is the go-to writer on race relations in America as it intersects with faith and spirituality, covering such topics as poverty, gun control, celebrity, education, and white supremacy for outlets including The Atlantic, The Washington Post, and Christianity Today. Esau's new memoir, How Far to the Promised Land, questions the narrative of exceptionalism that he and other black survivors are conditioned to give when they make it in America. Esau is married to Mandy, a pediatrician and a Navy reservist, and together they have four wonderful children. Welcome, Esau. Thank you so much. I'm probably going to get in trouble if I don't acknowledge that I work for the New York Times. They will probably get mad (laughs) (laughs) if they were the ones who were left out, but I'm a contributing opinion writer for them, and I don't want my bosses yelling at me. So if you hear me, bosses, I said the New York Times, so don't send me an email. And most of all, the New York Times. (laughs) Yeah. So Esau, let's start with the sort of the germ of this book, which is for most of your life, you were taught to see yourself as an exception, somebody who through hard work and faith and determination overcame childhood poverty, anti-black racism, and an absent father to make it as a university professor, father of four. And that is all true, but that sort of narrative of exceptionalism was all called into question one night and tell us about that. Yeah. So in 2017, I was, you know, well into adulthood. I had like the four kids and we were living in a you know, nice suburban place in Rochester, New York. And I got a phone call in the middle of the night. The news from my sister who called me weeping was that my father had died in California. We're actually Southerners. We're from the South in Alabama. And he had died on a trucking trip and a single car accident in California, far from everyone that he knew. And my father had abandoned us when we were younger and I didn't know him very well. He'd been in and out of our life. When he had been in our life, he had been abusive, struggled with drugs and addiction. And it quickly became clear in the context of a few conversations with our family that they wanted me to do the eulogy. They wanted me to deliver the eulogy for his funeral. And you're a preacher, so or have been a preacher. <laughs> so. I had been a preacher. At that point, I was just a university professor. I was no longer serving in a local church, and I still don't serve in the church. I just, I'm a lowly professor at this point. But my family asked me if I would do the eulogy. And anyone who's ever heard knows about a eulogy, you actually have to get to know the person who you're eulogizing. That's kind of an important part of it, which is odd that it was my father. And so it led to me sitting down with members of my family and 
finding out about his story and you can't find anything about his story without touching on my story. And I learned a lot from that. I learned, for example, that his great grandmother was a tenant farmer who saved up money to buy a plot of land in the context of segregation of Jim Crow. And that he had it. My father had his own trauma. One of the last things that uh, my father was told by his father was that he was never going to be anything and that he had his own history of trauma and abandonment. And in the midst of doing the research for the eulogy, it forced me, anytime you're writing a eulogy, you're trying to find some meaning and purpose and some beauty in a human life, even a life that was complicated. And that struggle to find beauty and something redemptive from a very broken life changed the way that I told my own story, especially when I began to see that our story that began with my great grandmother through my grandmother, through my father onto me, is really the story of America. That it's not just me who is important in the context of what's going on in the South, but it's my grandmother, my great grandmother, my father, and even people on both sides of my family. Because one of the things about being Black and in the South, we're never separated from the American story. What I mean by that is that you can have enough money and resources to kind of put yourself out of the midst of controversy. When you're poor and you're Black, Jim Crow really matters to you. When you're poor and you're Black, segregation really impacts the way that you live your life. And so by simply telling the story of my family across these generations, I began to tell the story of America. And so I realized that the only stories then aren't the stories in which people make it. It's the stories in which all of us are struggling to find meaning and purpose. And that process of writing the eulogy and finding about these stories fundamentally changed how I see the world. You say in the book that I don't want to speak about overcoming racism and poverty as a hero. Yeah. Nobody escapes poverty. You say we're marked by it. (laughs) Yeah. So one of the interesting things about like people say that you escape poverty. Well, unless you take your entire family and extended family and every friend that you know with you, you still return to those same communities. I still go home to the exact same neighborhood. As a matter of fact, in two or three days, I'm going to get on a plane and go back to Huntsville. And so the people that you know that are still struggling and making a way through poverty, they're still a part of your life. The community that shaped you are still a part of your life. But not only that, the memories still are there. So, for example, I live in a nice neighborhood, but I make sure every door in my house is still locked at night. I'm very cautious about my children. My wife is much more, let the kids go and play. I was like, I need to know exactly where you are and what you're up to. And so there's these habits. And one of the things that you really ask yourself, and I've struggled with this and I talk about it in the book. So when my son has a baseball game or a soccer game or anything, I make sure that I'm there. I don't want to miss any of them. And I sometimes think, am I going there because I want to love my child? Or am I going there because I want to prove that I'm better than my father, who wasn't there for my games? And so even when you're doing things differently than the childhood that I knew, you're still shaped by them. I don't think that we escape our past. In some sense, our past shapes the way that we perceive the world. It even shapes our hopes and our dreams. I'm going to use another phrase you use in the book because I thought it was perfect. Like your past is more than the tragic backdrop to your feats of grit and determination. (laughs) Right? Yeah. The people in your life are more than that or more than proof of how great you are. I tell this story in the book about when I was getting ready to go to college and you have to write the essay. It's really interesting post, you know, the end of affirmative action, but you have to write these essays to get into college. And I don't know how to get into college. Nobody in my family had gone, except for my sister who was a year older than me, two years older than me. And so I said to the counselor, how do you do it? How do you get into college? And she says, well, tell them a sob story. Tell them that they have a chance to pluck this poor black kid from the kind of the burning fires of poverty and put them into a different circumstance. 
But that always felt so fake because they didn't actually know my neighborhood. They didn't know my mom's food or what it was like to walk the halls of my high school or what it was like to live in my neighborhood. So I had to tell them a simplified story. And that simplified story is what people, it's the story that they want to hear. And if you tell their story well, they give you all of the stuff. They let you into school. They let you into graduate school. They give you an opportunity to write about how you overcame the, I call it the Horatio Alger story dipped in chocolate. But what can happen is if you're not careful, you can actually start to believe that story. That you can start to believe that you six, and it's kind of funny. I see it on social media, grind culture. You just got to believe you got to manifest. That's just simply not true. There's tons of people who tried really hard, who worked really hard, and who didn't get what they manifested. It's just not true. And so what I wanted to say is I wanted to tell a story in which, because because of the community that I came from, there is a lot of trauma. There is a lot of death. People die in the book. But I wanted to treat their lives as meaningful in and of themselves apart from what they taught me and how they spurred my narrative on. Yes, yes. And so that was what I was trying to do. And the sad part about this is that only the survivors get to tell the story. And I wanted to give some of these characters a dignity in death they didn't get in life. And so I wanted to show that there was tons of people who are talented and gifted and smart and clever in my community And it's not just a few exceptional people that make it. The real story of my childhood is America destroys too many talented black people before they have a chance to become what they might have become in in other circumstances. We're talking to Esau McCauley. His new memoir is How Far to the Promised Land. And we'll be right back. Margaret, I've got a go-to baby shower gift that I give whenever there's another newborn in my life. Can you guess what it is? Amy, three guesses. First two don't count. It's Pampers Swaddlers. Exactly. Pampers Swaddlers keep baby skin dry, happy, and healthy. Pampers Swaddlers absorb wetness better than the leading value brand and provide up to 100% leak-proof skin protection and up to 0% skin irritation. Pampers Swaddlers are dermatologist approved by the Skin Health Alliance, hypoallergenic, and free of parabens and latex. Try Swaddlers with new Pampers Free and Gentle Wipes for healthy baby skin. These wipes are five times stronger, gripping mess more firmly, shall we say, and making diaper changes a breeze. For trusted protection, trust Pampers, the number one pediatrician recommended brand. Download the Pampers Club app today and earn Pampers cash. Then redeem your Pampers cash for exclusive Pampers coupon savings and rewards. Only redeemable via Pampers Club. Pampers cash has no cash value. Amy, when I'm dehydrated, I get headaches. I get cranky and I don't feel good in general. Also, I am dehydrated a lot of the time. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Because being good with the water bottle is one thing, but getting that sodium and potassium with the fluids, turns out that is the key to seeing optimally hydrated. So whether you're looking to hydrate during your workout, while traveling, or at the end of a long night, Sports Research Hydrate Electrolytes have got you covered with over 65 trace minerals, seven essential vitamins, and coconut water powder. Crisp and refreshing without any sugar, this is hydration powered by Sports Research. Each box has 16 little stick packs that you can take on the go, whether you're headed to an exercise class, a night out with friends, or a podcasting conference. 
And did we mention they come in delicious flavors from raspberry lemonade to cherry pomegranate. Stay hydrated with Sports Research Hydrate Electrolytes. Visit sportsresearch.com and use the code WHATFRESH at checkout for 50% off your purchase of Hydrate. That's S-P-O-R-T-S-R-E-S-E-A-R-C-H.com, sportsresearch.com, and use code WHATFRESH for 50% off your Hydrate Electrolytes order. Esau, I wanted to talk about your mom, who is a huge part of this book. Your mom, Lori, she raised four kids alone. And you talk in the book about this era. Some of our listeners might be too young to remember this, but I remember it well in an era of the demonization of welfare queens. So let's talk a little bit about what that meant. Yeah. In the days before social media, it was all talk radio. It's kind of where like what we now consider like radical right-wing media stuff was kind of found its initial home. And it was in the newspapers and those kinds of things. And the idea was there was these Black women who were living high on the hog, as we would say it in the South, off of these big, huge government checks. And they didn't work and they just lived off everybody else's labor. As a matter of fact, one of the interesting things, that recent song, Richmond, North of Richmond, actually refers to it. These overweight women, supposedly, who are getting these welfare checks. And so there's this real hatred towards people who are on government assistance. Well, during that time period, my mom got a brain tumor and that brain tumor left her disabled. And we went tumbling down the economic ladder. She had worked as a factory worker at Chrysler, but she we wound up on government assistance. And I think we're making, I forget the numbers in the book, it's like $24,000 a year. For a family of how many? For a family of four. Well, five of us, four children and my mother. But she was a single woman raising four kids. And she was in some sense the manifestation of the stereotype. And you felt that judgment. I'll tell this one story about when I first realized that we were poor. We were going to church, but it wasn't the church that we normally go to. It was just a church down the road from where we live. And it wasn't a Sunday. It was the middle of the week. And I was a little bit confused as to why we were in church. My mom took us to church all of the time, but it was normally our, our regular church. And I went in. It was like a grocery store, like on the inside of this church building. And there was like the little carts and everything. And my mom was putting in items. like, And I realized, oh, this is a charity place where they give food to people who can't afford it. And for me, like my shoulders just dropped. It's like all of the, I can't believe we can't afford to buy regular food. But when I looked at my mom, she had this sense of like steely eyed determination and dignity that she went about her shopping as if it was just an ordinary day. And so one of the things that I took from that is that like our circumstances, regardless of what other people said about us, regardless of what was going on in the wider world, that struggle didn't have to take away your dignity. It didn't have to take away your aspirations. My mom, even though we were poor and we lived in a difficult location, she made it clear that we could become, all of us, the four of us, whatever our talents would enable us to become. And she instilled a hope in a context where it would be really nihilistic. I could tell you more about some of the stuff that she did, but I'll say one more thing about, because she's the hero of the book. When she was disabled, and I won't get into the details of why, but she actually couldn't work during the time because of the way that drugs affected her pituitary gland and those kinds of things. But what she did is she began to volunteer at the high school 
or the middle school than the high school. And so when, instead of going to work, she would come to the school every day and she began to tutor like other kids in the school. And she became basically the school's mom. It was, it got to the point where she was more popular in my high school than I was. And she ended up becoming the head of the PTA in our high school and then the president of the Alabama State PTA. And then what the first black, I think probably still the only single black mother ever elected to office in the city of Huntsville, Alabama. And if anyone knows, she was elected to the school board. If anyone knows anything about school boards, a lot of the people who are on the school board are independently wealthy and they can just, doesn't really matter. They just do it as kind of a thing to do in politics. But she was on welfare on the school board. I just don't think this ever happened before. And it just showed us how, what was possible. And so I will forever be grateful to her and the way in which she instilled in us that sense of possibility. But as I go on to say in the book, there are other parents who also instilled that sense of possibility through their children and through no fault of their own. Some of their children lost their lives. So even that idea isn't as simple as you need a great mom because you need a great mom. You also need things to go your way. So your father was an addict and he was in and out of the picture, in and out of prison. Your mom had a brain tumor. And you're a child in this situation. I'm going to give you another quote from your book. You say, children of single parents learn to dole out their own traumas in very small doses. So how are you growing up through all this? Are you feeling like I have to get everything right? One of the things that you notice, it becomes pretty clear that your mom, my mom was making a sacrifice for me. I could tell the fatigue that she had, even when she tried to hide it. And so I wanted her to feel like it was working. So I didn't tell her everything that was going on in my life because I didn't want to add another burden to her. I talk about the first time I go to school, I'm in first or second grade, and I'm sick. And most of the time when you're sick with a single mom, you don't call unless it's a real emergency. I'm, I'm genuinely sick on this day. So I go to the front office to make a phone call. But somehow the number had, it wasn't the correct number for her job. I just called this random white guy. The first time I asked for my mom, he gets mad and he hangs up. And then I call again. And he says to me, you N-word, you need to know how to use the phone. And he hangs up again. And that was the first time I'd ever been called a racial slur. the first time that I understood that like being black can make someone angry. And one, I remember thinking as a kid, how did he know over the phone that I was black? How did he know? Like, was there some flaw in how my, I spoke? And that incident was kind of like the first introduction to being black as the world sees it not as it black was defined in my community. But I went home and I never told my mom. As a matter of fact, my mom said she didn't even know about it until she read the book. (laughs) (laughs) So she's opening it up as you all go, oh, I didn't know this happened to you in first grade. And so as a parent of, I mean, as a child of a single mom, you just learn there are certain things that you have to handle for yourself. And it's almost like we're both lying to each other. My mom's lying about how hard it is to give us a sense of things are going to be okay. We're lying about how great things are going. And I think that's the reason why, if you listen to a lot of hip hop, and I talk about this in the book, around this time period, because a lot of rappers during the 80s and the 90s came from single parent homes. You have all of these rap songs about Dear Mama by Tupac and all of these things, which there's a tremendous amount of gratitude for the things that our mothers did to allow us to have an opportunity to have a better life. You talk about how the welfare queen sort of stigma attaches itself to the kids and it creates, you talk about the high schools in your town. There was a white high school and a black high school. 
And if the white high school wasn't in the newspaper, it was because like yet again, they have 1800 National Merit Scholars. And if your high school is in the newspaper, it's because like another fight, right? Another disappointment. It's funny because I'm a grown man and I still don't like that high school. And I see like, it's sorry, it's the high school where people with money come from. So like, I still run into people from um, that high school and I don't know why I'm mad at them. Like, <laughs> it's not like these individuals, like Grissom High School. Oh, I said it out loud, but it's okay. God bless Grissom. But it was Grissom High School and on the other side and they were one of the top schools in the state and we were one of the worst schools in the state. But one of the things they didn't talk about was how there was once industry in Northwest Huntsville, where I'm from, and all of the industry left and they went to the other side of town. And in Huntsville, before it was integrated, when it was a segregated school, it was created. When the area was, was whiter, there was more resources. The money and the resources, even the black middle class left their part of Huntsville and we tumbled down the economic ladder. And so if you have a red line, economically disadvantaged area by law and custom, then you are obviously going to have a place where poverty is going to cluster, where poverty clusters, all of the things that accrue with poverty cluster. And one of the things that was always interesting is that black success, and this is the reason why I challenge exceptionalism in the book, black success was always about individuals and black failure was always about black people. So if a black person got into a fight, it was a big fight. It was like Johnson High School is out of control. If a black person got a merit scholarship, it was Inner city kid overcomes, you know, blah, 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 and gets the scholarship. And I should say, well, why is it that it's only our trauma that is judged as a collective and never our successes? It's such a good point. It gave me a lot to think about that part of the book. Because I, th I also think we give ourselves a pass sometimes as white people that like, if you're good enough, you'll make it out. And like, look, this kid's getting a free ride to Sewanee. See, like. We're good people. This is the funny part. And I want to make sure that I, when I say this, sometimes people just understand the point that I'm trying to make. I want to say it well. When I got to college, I thought that everyone who had gotten to college went through what I went through to get to college. In other words, it was a big deal in my family. We're the first ones in my generation. My sister was the first one. I give my sister the credit or she'll yell at me. My sister is two years older, who's a pediatric cardiac intensivist. Can't even say it, but she does preoperative care for children. So anyways, she's the first one. I'm second. I thought that all of us, everyone who went to college had that sense of, I'm going to change my families in my neighborhood trajectory by my interest in the college. I had no idea that you could be a C student. And if your parents had enough money, you could just pay to go to college. And so I went to college and there were all of these people who were just getting drunk. And I'm not saying, I'm not being like judgmental in a puritanical way. I'm like, wait a minute, you're getting drunk and you're getting high. You're just messing around because you know that when you graduate, your family has a job and a business waiting for you. And you had the privilege to take high school flippantly and your first few years of college flippantly because you know you had a future set for you. And I said that changed my definition of justice because justice now is the opportunity for ordinary black people to flourish. Because I knew a bunch of ordinary white students in my school and every single black person almost who went there had some tremendous story. And I said, well, hold on. Where are my C student high school black kids? Oh, I know why they don't, they're not legacy admissions, but because when the legacies were started, Jim Crow and segregation existed and black people literally couldn't come. And the economic, long-term economic impact of those advantages that began generations back are what allow for people to say, I can dole out $50,000 a semester for someone to go to college. They got me to go to Swanee and Swanee is a great school. They got me to go when someone walked up to me and said, the recruiter said, when you graduate, your brain will be worth $200,000. He said, I remember it. 
I was like, well, my mom makes $25,000 a year. That's eight years of my family's income for an education. I couldn't imagine it. And the idea that people pay tuition. And I was just like, wow. And sorry, this is, I'll say a thing about the, the way this relates directly to the book. One of the stories that I tell is of my mom's father and how he grew up. He was born in 1937, I think. So he, he's growing up. He starts picking cotton when he's four years old in the 1940s. He's a four-year-old kid who would pick cotton and then he would go to school and they would let them out of school for harvest time so that he could, you know, pick more cotton. And because he was a tenant farmer at the end of every year, him and his family would go and they would go to the white person who owned the land and the guy would say, you just barely broke even. But it's Jim Crow. And even though they couldn't negotiate it. And so by the time my grandfather gets to his freshman year in high school, he's a, he does straight A's when he's actually in school, but he's like 16, 17 years old because he's missed so much time from picking cotton to enrich another family. So he has to drop out of school. And had he wanted to go to college anyway, he couldn't go to college because most of them were segregated. And we all know that the biggest predictor of college education is the education of your parents. So my grandfather was raised in the context of segregation, primary board education, and massive resistance. Well, that has a direct impact on my mother, who's raised in that context. And so I'm really the first generation in my family to be raised by someone who went to integrated school. She started her schools were integrated in, in like the first grade. And so what I'm saying is the economic reality of Jim Crow isn't some abstraction. It's that my grandparents labor enriched another family that I'm sure that wealth was passed down from person to person. So we talk about the long tail of racism in the South. It's not a hypothetical. For me, it's a lived experience. We're talking to Esau Macaulay. His new memoir is How Far to the Promised Land. And we'll be right back. So I have been taking my Nutrafol regularly and oh my goodness, it works. Friends, I'm here to say, ditto, it works. I mean, most of us will experience hair thinning at some point in our lives. And yes, it's perfectly normal. But if you also see your part getting a little wider, join the over 1 million people who are doing something about it with Nutrafol. Nutrafol is the number one dermatologist recommended hair growth supplement with over 1 million people seeing thicker, stronger, faster growing hair with less shedding. Nutrafol has multiple formulas that are tailored to give your hair what it needs to grow based on your age, your lifestyle factors, because a one-size-fits-all approach to hair products isn't practical. Nutrafol supports healthy hair growth by targeting key root causes of thinning like stress, hormones, environment, nutrition, lifestyle, and metabolism. So take the first step to visibly thicker, healthier hair. For a limited time, Nutrafol is offering our listeners $10 off your first month's subscription and free shipping when you go to Nutrafol.com and enter the promo code LAUGHING. Find out why over 4,500 healthcare professionals and stylists recommend Nutrafol for healthier hair. Nutrafol.com, spelled N-U-T-R-A-F-O-L.com, promo code laughing. That's Nutrafol.com, promo code laughing. Amy, you know me well enough to know that my daily power breakfast is... Toast with peanut butter on top. Toast with peanut butter. It's also, by the way, one of my favorite power breakfasts. We agree on that thing. We were recently together and we shared some toast with peanut butter. And I'm going to tell you, we used Hero Bread. It adds even more protein and fiber to that combo without adding any more sugar. Hero Bread has remade the carby, empty calorie bread products into versions that include no net carbs, zero gram sugar, and fewer calories, plus more protein and fiber while 
still being super fluffy and delicious. I was not sure that that particular combination was going to be possible, but Hero Bread has figured it out. Yeah, this is one I'm glad they let us try. It's like, it really tastes good. I've been trying to add more protein to my diet, and I would have thought that a hamburger rolls was not the place to do that, Amy. <laughs> but all of Hero Bread's products, from rolls to tortillas to croissants, we please, offer protein and fiber, zero to one grams of net carbs, and zero grams of sugar. Start your Hero Bread bundle on their website and get 10% off your order. Go to hero.co and use the code motherhood at checkout. I like this bread, people. It's H-E-R-O dot C-O and code motherhood for 10% off your order of Hero Bread. Margaret, I've been at the research again, looking into metabolic health and more importantly, metabolic flexibility, which turns out is the key to improved energy levels, better sleep, better fitness, all the things. And I found out about all this because we got a chance to try Lumen, the first handheld device that helps you manage your metabolic health. Lumen works when you breathe into it. If you do that first thing in the morning or after a workout, Lumen measures your metabolism by measuring the amount of carbon dioxide in your breath. It's science, people. That lets you see exactly what's going on in your body in real time. Then you use Lumen's app to get tailored guidance to improve your sleep, your nutrition, even stress management. If you're interested in figuring out the effects of different sorts of foods on your body, Lumen is a really cool way to see what's actually happening as your body burns different fuel sources. If you want to take the next step in improving your health, go to lumen.me and use Fresh to get $100 off your Lumen. That is L-U-M-E-N dot M-E. Lumen.me and use the code Fresh at checkout for $100 off. Thank you, Lumen, for sponsoring this episode. I wanted to talk, Esau, a little bit about your path to becoming a preacher. Was it the same grandfather that was a preacher or, or a different grandfather? Same grandfather. Okay, so he was a preacher. And it was your grandmother that really had you marked from it from the beginning. Do I have that right? <laughs> <laughs> it's funny. It's the grandmother on the other side of the family. So yeah, it kind of switched back and forth. My my father's grandmother was the one who had me marked from a childhood. But my grandfather on my mom's side, Theodore Bone, was the preacher in the family. And was this something as a child that made sense to you? Was it something that you would first resisted and found your way to? How did it come into your life? Well, at least in my family, we tend towards binaries. So there's a joke that we're either kind of in the streets or in the church. And so I never thought that I was going to be a minister when I was growing up. Who wants to be a minister when they're a kid? Um, I want to be a football coach. But there's this moment that I talk about in the book, and I don't want to give away too much of it, but I find myself in this neighborhood that I shouldn't have been in. And these people come up to me and they kind of say, what are you doing here? You know, kind of where you're from, what you're doing in our space. And normally it wouldn't have been a big deal, but I noticed that one of the people who was, who was questioning me had a gun. And that kind of took the entire conversation to another level, an existential level. And I don't know why, to this day, I don't know why the question of who are you in that moment took on an existential question. Like it was almost like the voice of God through this like 15 year old, 16 year old boy. And I was like, well, who am I? Am I just like the combination of all of these hostilities that I've developed over the last, you know, 15 or 20 years on this planet? Am I just someone trying to be different from my father? Am I just another statistic waiting to happen? And much to my surprise, the words that came out of my mouth is that I'm a Christian. Which is a weird thing to say. And if I could, I was like, I remember I said, if I could have chased those words down and pulled them back in my mouth, I would have. Because we had this idea in my neighborhood that if you're scared, go to church. That religion was for people who were afraid. And I wasn't afraid of those boys. I was just tired. 
And that moment led me to realize I felt a sense of this entire game that we play in my neighborhood is a game where there are no winners. And that I know that for a lot of people, religion and Christianity, it's just another hustle. It's just another way to like get by. But I did think there was a different and better and more profound way of encountering God, where we saw like this idea that the needy and the stepped-on people of the world are valuable and deserve care and protection, and that we can all become better people. And that I wanted to talk about that, but not in the way that I was raised to do. I'm not like if anyone has the picture of kind of like this, the down-home Southern preacher of old. There's no, there's nothing wrong with that. That just wasn't who I was. I was much more introspective, and I felt like. There's this song by this guy named Chance the Rapper. And he has this line where he says, I talk to God in public, in his music. And I felt like in my brain, I just need to talk to God in public, to ask him the questions that were being asked of my community out loud. Like, why do you allow these things to happen? Um, why are we experiencing these kinds of things? And what good might you have to offer us so we might point to a, a better life? And so I don't think I experienced a call to become a Baptist pastor like my grandfather, much to his eternal disappointment. But I do feel like um, I was called to become a writer who explored these things with the pen instead of the pulpit. That your ministry has actually become these books. Yeah. And I didn't know it at the time because there was no category. There was no category. Like, I promise you, I didn't know one person in my neighborhood who said, I'm going to be a writer. <laughs> right. And I didn't know any writers. Someone, one of the questions I get asked all of the time is like, how did you know you wanted to write for the New York Times? Or how did you conceive of that dream? It's like, I didn't even conceive of it. I didn't even apply for it. They sent me, people reached out to me and it kind of developed organically, but I couldn't even in my imagination dream of one day having the opportunity to write for the Times or the Atlantic or the Washington Post. It just, it was something, one of the things that people misunderstand about kind of the, this idea that you either choose drugs or you choose sports or you choose the church. It is because it's we're simplistic. But sometimes you can only dream for what you can see. My children, they just assume they're even like my son is my youngest is seven years old. She just assumes she's going to college. She talks about going to college where dad goes to college and their mom is a doctor and their father is a professor and a writer. So their imagination is so big that they think they can be anything. And it's easier to say that any kid can think they can be anything, but it's hard to dream for what you haven't seen. And so for me, I didn't know that it was writing that I was feeling this sense of calling to, but I knew that the standard ways of being that were common in my neighborhood didn't what I felt called to do. Now that you are a parent, you talk in the book, I'm going to give you another quote from your book. You said, my children glimpse only part of my upbringing, the best part of it. But I want to tell them about the hard times, too, because there is no joy without suffering. And it is both the joy and the suffering that make me who I am. So how do you talk to your kids about your whole story? One of the things that happened, my kids go home for Thanksgiving and Christmas and these holidays. So that's where no matter what's going on in your family and in your neighborhood, everyone comes together, you eat good food and everyone's happy. And so their perception of our my family is kind of distorted. They can kind of tell because the neighborhood isn't as nice, but it's a fine neighborhood. It's not like they're, my mom's living in a, like a nice lower middle class neighborhood, but they kind of know, but it seems pretty ordinary to them. What they didn't see were the things that surrounded, like what was life like before Thanksgiving and after Thanksgiving. And so the hard part is when you grow up in poverty, you feel a sense of responsibility for that community. When you don't grow up in that place, you don't have the sense of responsibility because it's alien to you. And how do you tell that story 
in such a way that it's not just, you don't know what it was like when I was a kid, but to capture the complexity. And in part, this may seem super selfish, part of how far to the promised land is a gift to them so that they don't see their dad or even black poverty as this stereotypical, they're all suffering, they're all, you know, miserable, or it's all joy. And so actually the book itself is the attempt to explain to them what their dad and other poor Black Southerners went through and our responsibility to make the world a little bit more of a just place. I don't want my children to experience the same poverty and difficulty that I did, but I want them to give them the feeling. And I feel like as a writer, there's people in that in this book who wouldn't let me go. There's stories who wouldn't let me go. They changed and they shaped how I viewed the world. And I thought that maybe by giving these stories to my children and to the reader, It would change them and shape how they viewed the world as well. Absolutely. The idea that hard lives are beautiful in their own way. That's where the book sort of ends, right? And it's not just the people who made it all the way to the promised land who deserve to be remembered and lauded for what they did. Yes, that's the exact. I think that what happens when you have an exemplar is that we know how the story ends and we know what to do. We boo the racism, we boo the poverty, we boo the injustice, and we cheer the person through the book. And we get to the end and we go, that was a great emotional experience. I booed at the right parts. I've clapped at the <laughs> right. right parts. I'm done. But I want to say, well, what about these stories that end in different places? What do you do with them? I told the story of my um, cousin who passes away due to AIDS during the, the beginning of the AIDS pandemic, kind of similar to when COVID. We didn't understand it. We didn't know how it was spread. And her life is complicated, but there was some beauty in that life. And like her life matters too. And especially the way she's treated vis-a-vis the healthcare industry. And I want to say we need to wrestle with this story as well. And not simply as a tragedy, but as a life, a human life lived with dignity. that has its own hardware beauty. I guess what I want to really say is I didn't want to say that my entire childhood and neighborhood and community was a wash. We can just toss it to the side because that's not how I viewed those people. And I know what it's like for people to ignore us to stereotype us, to everyone had, everyone when I was growing up had the microphone and the newspaper and they got to tell the story of my community. And if I have one passion in life is that I said, no, 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 you don't get to tell our story anymore. That we get to tell our story. And our story, yes, it has pain. Yes, it has some of our own brokenness and trauma, but there's also a beauty there. And you are going to have to see us. And you're going to have to pay attention to us. You're going to have to reckon with us as the people who deserve dignity and respect. Esau Macaulay's new memoir is called How Far to the Promised Land. I'm sure you can tell from having listened to this episode just how beautiful it is. And I loved this book. I'm going to put the link in the show notes so everybody can buy it. And Esau, tell us where else we can find you on the internet. Well, I have an odd name, Esau Macaulay. And the only other person welcome, well, my father passed away. He's the only other person who has that name. So you can look at me at Esau Macaulay on Twitter, Instagram. What is it called now? X. <laughs> oh my goodness. Threads, Instagram. Whatever it's called today. X until <laughs> that thing finally dies. It's a slow death. But all of the social media places, you can find me. And I have a website, EsauMacaulay.com as well. Thank you so much for talking to me today. You're welcome. You have a great day. If you're a parent, I invite you to join us at the Mindful Mama podcast, where it's all about becoming a less irritable, more joyful parent. 
with sometimes hilarious and always thought-provoking experts and friends. At Mindful Mama, we know that you cannot give what you do not have. And when you have calm and peace within, then you can give it to your children. I'm Hunter Clark Fields, and I can't wait to see you there. Listen in to the Mindful Mama podcast. Margaret, it's an exciting news day. An exciting news day indeed, Amy. A few years ago, we launched our first spinoff podcast, Toddler Purgatory, hosted by the hilarious Blair Brooks and Molly Lloyd. And guess what? Now, Blair and Molly are back with their all-new podcast, Unsticking It. You know Blair and Molly as two busy moms and actors, and somewhere between potty training and the pandemic, they both felt like they lost their creative kaboom. In their new podcast, Unsticking It, they are going to talk about how all of us can get back to what lights us up after motherhood. Amy, I need this. Me too. And Blair and Molly will be talking to fellow imaginative minds. We're talking actors, artists, and creators of all kinds about how we can all unstick ourselves from whatever muck we're stuck in. Follow, subscribe, and listen to Unsticking It wherever you get your podcasts. That's Unsticking It with Blair and Molly, because sometimes life stucks.